When we think of the Christmas story, and particularly the biblical telling of it, most of us grab our details out of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. They are the most detailed places for those things. So it isn't surprising. Matthew and Luke write all kinds of wonderful things that we don't find other places in Scripture, like this. It is through them that we learn the names of Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. It's also through Matthew and Luke that we get introduced to the angel Gabriel and we find out what his name was. It's through Matthew and Luke that we meet shepherds and wise men. We hear about stars and innkeepers. It's through Matthew and Luke that we also discover the truth of God's great enemy, Satan, and the way that he uses people in this life to accomplish his purposes through a man named Herod. There are some mysterious parts in their stories, Matthew and Luke's, where we meet people like Simeon and Anna around the temple. And it's through them that we also discover some of the Jewish traditions that surround newborn children. All of those are recorded in those two Gospels. And so most people grab hold of those stories when they think of Christmas. But that doesn't mean that Mark and John have nothing to offer and that those Gospels should be overlooked. Not at all. They have a lot to teach. John has an incredibly unique way of telling the Christmas story. If you brought your Bible with you, open with me to John chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. I just want you to listen to how John talks about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now that's how John tells the story of Christmas. Isn't it powerful? It really is. John's telling of the Christmas story contains a lot and it should never be overlooked. And in fact, we should look right at it as John is telling a Christmas story, the coming of the Messiah. Well, that leaves us Mark. And most people will skip right over Mark. They may value John's telling of the story a little less than Matthew and Luke's, but most people look over Mark and they shouldn't. Now, I'm a little bit prejudiced because the Gospel of Mark is my favorite. 
and it has been for a long time. It reads in a very fast-paced manner. The author uses the word immediately on a regular basis, skipping from one story to the next. The Gospel of Mark seems to be full of stories about Jesus and how he interacts with other people. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, yet it contains immense teaching that should never be overlooked. For the longest time, people believed that Mark was just an addition to the Gospel of Matthew. They even believed, some of them did, that it was written by the exact same person. It was just a continuation. Well, it's not that at all. A few hundred years ago, as scholars were studying the Gospels out, they discovered that Mark was not written by Matthew, that the authorship of the book was completely different, and they discovered that it was written by John Mark. Now, you might remember John Mark was the person who had some conflict with the Apostle Paul, and there was division in their ministry, and Paul sent John Mark away. He was so disappointed in him, he didn't know if John Mark would ever amount to anything. Now, at the end of Paul's story, he is reunited with John Mark. The two of them find value in one another, and the Apostle Paul would actually ask for him to come back. Barnabas would chase John Mark and make sure that he still knew that God wanted to use him. And then after Barnabas and he had spent some time together, John Mark found his way to a point of connection with another apostle. That was Peter. The apostle Peter and John Mark became very, very close. As a result of that, it would appear that Peter told Mark all kinds of stories about Jesus. And Mark wrote them down. The gospel of Mark is not Mark's gospel. It is Peter's gospel, written by John Mark. As the stories were dictated to him, Mark made sure that we would have them. So he preserved every one of them. And that's what's contained in this book. When you recognize that about the gospel of Mark, the way the stories are written make a lot more sense because Peter understood Jesus. He understood something that Matthew had said And as a result of his understanding of it, Mark seems to write of it. It's found in Matthew's telling of the Christmas story. Chapter 1 of his gospel, verse 23, Matthew writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Peter understood God with us. And Mark understood it because of Peter and because of his own relationship. When you start into Mark chapter 1 and make your way all the way through to the end, you're going to see Emmanuel stories over and over and over again. God with us. Jesus with mankind. Jesus changing and transforming lives. God with us. Emmanuel moments that become eternal moments for those that experience them. This morning, I want to walk you through four of those stories. They all follow one after the other, and they are all Emmanuel stories. We could easily title today's message, Four Christmases. Why don't you go with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, and I'll show you the first one. We're going to make our way through these pretty quick, but you're going to have to pay attention. There's a lot in this. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. 
And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now let's start unpacking this by going just to the first sentence. Here it is again. On that day, now we don't have to go any further than that into the first sentence before we find something somewhat curious. When the Bible says on that day, it is referring to the day that Jesus had just spent on the same day teaching all kinds of parables about the kingdom of God, helping people understand what a relationship with him really meant. As he was teaching with those parables, which by the way, Jesus always used parables. Parables are stories to drive home the points that he saw as important. He used those particularly with non-believers so that they could understand. Though interestingly enough, oftentimes the parables brought more questions than they did answers. And at some point, I think that's what Jesus was after. He wanted people to ask more to be curious, to look for more details. So he used these stories. So on that same day, after he had taught parables all day long about what the kingdom of God was like, the events that we just read took place. Everything leading up to it was a faith-building experience so that the 12 apostles could stand securely knowing that if they were with the Lord, everything was okay. At this point, Jesus had taken them through a master's level class in teaching, and it was time for them to be tested. So that's what happens. That's exactly what took place in the story we just read. Their faith was tested. There is a popular mistake made when people believe that the only time our faith is tested is when we have been disobedient to the Lord. That is not always the case. Sometimes it is. You can read the book of Jonah and you can see his faith being tested because of his disobedience. But you can also read the book of Job and see his faith being tested because of his obedience. In this particular case, this is a faith test connected to obedience. It is the wise Christian that figures out the difference. When you find yourself in a faith test, one of the first questions that you should ask is simple. Is this because of disobedience or is this because of obedience? If it is because of obedience, the odds are that it is following a period of teaching and training that you have gone through. Because every time, listen, every time we go through a period where our faith is stretched, where we have been taught and trained, it will be tested. Every time. You can just count on it. And it may have the appearance of a pop quiz or it may look like a test that you could prepare for. And if you're prepared for that test, things are going to go a lot easier. But sometimes these tests come like pop quizzes. And that's what was happening in Mark chapter 4. The apostles were going through a pop quiz. Now, here's how we know that. As we unpack this passage, as we get into the depth of it, we will discover things like this. It was Jesus who said, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's the one who said, 
let's get into the boat. Jesus knew what the weather was going to do. He was fully aware of the storm that was coming. That was no surprise to him. Pop quiz. Let's go, guys. Let's get in this boat. We'll sail at night. We'll see what happens. So when they got in and shoved off of the dock and started to make their way across the sea, Jesus actually went to sleep. He wanted to see what was going to happen, how they were going to handle it. And you saw exactly how they handled it. You saw exactly what they did. They forgot some very important things. There are at least three aspects of this story that we need to pull out because they will help us in similar situations when our faith is being tested. The first one is this. Because Jesus is the one who said, let's get into the boat and go to the other side, they knew that they were firmly in the middle of God's will. And when we know that we are in God's will, there is no room for fear. There's no place for it. To know that you are in God's will should drive fear out. And that's what should have happened for them. So that's that first thing that if we can learn it from the apostles and from this story, maybe we can have a different outcome. Maybe we can make our way through the storms of life a little differently. If you know you're in God's will, don't be afraid. If you know you're in God's will, don't worry. If you know you're in God's will, don't be anxious. You're right where you need to be. That's a point that is driven home in a lot of different places in Scripture. Moses wanted the children of Israel to know that when they were standing on the edge of the Jordan River, getting ready to go into the promised land. The Hebrew people needed to know that it was God's will for them to go there. They needed to know that so they wouldn't be afraid. Listen to what Moses says to him in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. When you are in God's will, you don't need to be afraid. Now here's the second lesson that the apostles seemed to miss. They missed the fact that they were in God's will, but they also missed the fact that they were in God's presence. Jesus was right there with them. And because Jesus was with them, there was no reason for them to be afraid. That's what he had just been teaching. Those are the stories that he had just been telling them. The kingdom of God is such that I will be with you. And if we are in the presence of God, we don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious. And certainly we shouldn't be frightened. No matter what's happening, there's no reason for fear to take hold. Listen to what the book of Psalms tells us in the 23rd Psalm, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, that's the same lesson that Jesus would have loved for his apostles to have grabbed hold of. David understood it. That's why he could write the 23rd Psalm the way he did. We understand it. That's why we long for that Psalm in the most difficult times of our life. We find comfort in it. And the Lord wants it to be that way. It's a visible sign of his presence. Psalm 23 is. So we want to hear it when we are struggling and when we're in the midst of storms. So they knew that they were in God's will. They knew that they were in God's presence and they were experiencing God's peace. Yet they could not battle their fear. Here's how we know that they were experiencing God's peace. Did you see what Jesus was doing? 
He was asleep. He was asleep. Jesus was at peace. It's going to be okay. Jesus was calm. No reason to be afraid. Jesus was at peace. He's got this. So here they have this wonderful concept of God's will, and they could see themselves in it. They had this tangible idea of God's presence because they could see him, and now they had the ability to look right at him and see the personality of Jesus. He was at peace. He had no worries. He had no fears. And when we know that the Lord is at peace, we can be as well. If God is not stirring your spirit about certain things... There is no reason to be afraid. You don't have to worry. You don't have to get worked up. That's part of the joy of Emmanuel. God with us. I can grab hold of his peace. I can trust it and relax within it. Listen to this from Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's the peace of God. He grabs hold of us, we can lie down and sleep. The Lord's at peace, I will be too. I've trusted this to God, so everything is okay. That's the way it works. Now we take that story and, and then we use it as a launching pad into the things that happen next. We have to have that type of understanding and foundation before we get into Mark chapter 5. And if we do, these stories will all make sense. Let's go there together. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. It's kind of a fun story in Scripture. Your imagination can go all kinds of different ways. Mine does every time I read it. Listen to this, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. and No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. See how your imagination can go wild? Just imagine 2,000 pigs rushing the sea. 
imagine what it was like to see this man bound by chains up in the caves and then breaking those chains with superhuman strength. Your imagination can just spin out of control with this passage. And in that spinning, sometimes we can miss the things that we most need to grab hold of. I like the way Warren Wiersbe teaches this passage. He said there are three things that we really need to pay attention to. The first is the involvement of Satan in the story. And he does not mean by that the demons. He means the choices that led up to the demon possession. When you find demon possession in scripture, it is most often a result of horrible life choices that people have made. In this case, there must have been a lot of them. 2,000 demons, a legion of demons, possessed this man. A legion. He had made some tough choices. Satan had been at work in his life. The Bible teaches us that Satan comes to kill and destroy everything. And that's what had happened for this man. It had killed all of his hopes and dreams. It had destroyed his life. It had left him in a place where he had no choice but to be bound by chains outside of the city, living there at the base of the dump, eating food scraps that people threw away just to survive. That's where he was at. This was a tough situation. This was a satanic situation. For the most part, it came about because of the man's choices. Because of those choices, Wearsby says the second thing comes into play. Those are society's choices. This was a spiritual problem that society was never going to be able to answer, but society still has responsibility. In this particular case, the government, the officials, had to figure out a way to protect everyone in the city. They had to protect everybody in the country, so they locked the man up. They chained him up outside the city. And they left him there to fend for himself, believing that that's exactly what the country needed. And maybe it was. And there's a place where we have to appreciate what society does in the absence of spiritual answers. It's protective. They have a responsibility for everybody around them, government officials do. So they do what they can, yet that is very limited in spiritual situations. Society will isolate. Society will chain people up. Society will throw people away. They'll put them off to the side. They'll do the minimum necessary to protect everybody else. And that's all they can do. And I'm not pointing fingers. They were doing all that they could do. But society doesn't answer spiritual problems. The Savior does. Jesus does. And in this beautiful picture of Emmanuel, Jesus comes and changes everything. He takes care of society's issue and he restores and redeems this man. Isn't that the best part of this story? It isn't about the pigs. It's about what happens with this man. Jesus came, Emmanuel came, and restored everything in his life. Even to the point that when the man would say to Jesus, let me go with you, Jesus said, no, you go home. You have been restored. You've been redeemed. Let your family see what has happened here. You go home. Luke would capture that whole idea this way. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This man was lost, and Jesus sought him out, and he saved him. Now pay attention to this. Here's one of the the tiny little details of this story. It would appear that the appointment that Jesus had with this man 
that was locked up outside of the Decapolis, outside of the ten cities. That's what Decapolis means. It's a region where there were ten ancient cities. The only reason that Jesus said to the apostles, let's get in the boat and go to the other side, was so that he could see this man. He was seeking him out. There is no account at all that says that he went on into the Decapolis. It does not say that he went anywhere else. In fact, we're about to see that they got back in the boat and went back to Capernaum on the other side. It was all about this one guy. Emmanuel seeks one person at a time to save them. That's how Jesus does this. And then this guy experiences a God with me moment that changed everything in his life. It redeemed and restored everything in his life. And that helps us see what happens next. Let's go back to Mark chapter 5. Picking up now in verse 21, we are going to see an Emmanuel moment that gets interrupted and leads to another Emmanuel moment and then circles back to demonstrate who God is and how he works. Follow me through this. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Now at this point, Jesus had a plan. He had a purpose. He had a direction. He was going with Jairus to his house so that he could heal his daughter, so that he could lay hands on her, pray over her, do whatever Jesus needed to do to restore his or her health. Everything seems to be set and ordered for that very thing to happen. But what's the interruption that comes? And this is still in verse 24. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Boy, there's a lot in this story. Let's start with this lady. For 12 years, she had been bleeding, hemorrhaging. It had taken everything she had. All of her money had been spent on physicians. I've preached this before and told you that during these days, going to the doctor, was, it was far from pleasant. Far from pleasant. They used all kinds of different ideas and thoughts to try to heal people, and most of them were painful and ugly. She had spent everything that she had, and nothing helped. 12 years, this is what she lived with. According to Mosaic law, it meant that she had been unclean for 12 years, cast out, living on the edge of society. And then all of a sudden, she hears that Jesus is coming to town, and she had heard the stories, the rumors of what he was capable of. And obviously, a whole bunch of other people had heard about him as well, because the crowd came, and the Bible says they thronged around him. 
So this lady could see the crowd gathering in Capernaum when Jesus got off the boat and thought to herself, I have to get there because I have nothing left. I have nothing left. So she goes to Jesus and makes her way through the crowd. Now, when we understand all those details, it leads us to a place where we have to ask this question. What was her faith like? Because Jesus would say to her at the end of the story, your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. What was her faith like? Well, after a 12-year struggle like this, we can only assume that her faith was tired. We can only assume that her faith was weak. We can only assume that she was hanging on to it by a thin thread was all she had left. But it was enough. It was enough. She brought that little tiny bit of faith. And we could even assume that it had a a bit of a mystical side to it because she thought, I don't need to talk to him. I don't need to have him touch me. I don't need to have him pray for me. All I need to do is touch the hem of his garment and I could be healed. Well, there's no account in the Bible telling us that that's how Jesus healed people. So there had to be a little bit of a mystical side to her faith where she thought just being that close to him will change everything. So she got to the crowd, more than likely had to push her way through or fall on her knees or maybe even part the way so that she could get through because she was unclean. She did whatever she had to do and touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. She was healed. And Jesus knew instantly that power had gone out of him, that somebody had been healed. And you heard the details of the story. He said, who did this? And the apostle said, how do we answer that? This whole crowd of people around you is touching you. How do you want us to find one person? And Jesus found her. And there's this beautiful interchange between the two of them. And he says to her, daughter, your your faith has healed you. Everything's going to be okay now. Now, once you look at that, here's this really curious part of the story. Why wasn't anybody else healed? There was a crowd around him. The Bible says they were thronging around him. I don't actually know what it means to throng around somebody, but I'm pretty positive I've done it, and I'm pretty positive people have done it to me. I've been thronged, and I've thronged. And people, you have too. We all have. You've been thronged, and you have thronged. Walk through Walmart tomorrow. You'll be thronged. That's the way it works. So here's this huge crowd of people thronging around him, touching him, and only one person was healed. Only one person was healed. Now what does that tell you about her faith? It was greater than everybody else's. And as weak and as tired as hers was, it was enough. She just needed to be with Jesus. She needed an Emmanuel moment, and she got it. And Jesus restored her and redeemed her and gave her her life back. My friends, that's all it takes. Your faith may be weak and tired. It may be worn out. It may be exhausted. But if you've got it, that's enough. The Lord can work with that. When you find that God isn't at work, you may have to ask yourself, where is your faith? Have you even gone to him? Are you thronging around him? Have you sought out an Emmanuel moment? If not, you should. Now let's go back to that original story, Jairus' story. It picks back up in Mark 5 for us. Jesus has not forgotten where he was headed. This is verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Make her a sandwich. That's what Jesus said. Now follow this. When Jairus got to Jesus in Capernaum, he said, I need you to come with me. My daughter is in trouble. She was sick, and Jesus headed that way. And then Jesus got interrupted by this lady, and in however long that took for him to deal with that lady and the crowd that was thronging around him, something happened in Jairus' home. His daughter died in those moments. And Jesus said, we'll still go. He got back on track. When he got to Jairus' house, you heard what happened. People laughed at him. There was nothing he could do. But he took Jairus and his wife, and he said, you come with me. Peter, James, John, you come with me. Come up here. I want you to see something. And they went up there, and Jesus called her out of the grave. He brought her back. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And that happened in this Emmanuel, God with us moment where Jesus went into the upper room and brought her back. But the interesting part is this. Jairus had faith to go to the upper room. He didn't give up. He had Jesus with him. He had Emmanuel. He had God with him. So he went to the upper room. Now in the process of all of that, there's this really interesting detail in the middle of this story. Did you see it? It actually has parentheses around it in my Bible. Take a look back in yours. This is crazy intriguing. This is in verse 42. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. She was 12 years old. Now, that is the second time in Mark chapter 5 that the idea of 12 shows up. How long did the lady have the hemorrhage? 12 years. How old was this lady? She was 12, or this young girl, she was 12. There has got to be significance to that. What is the significance to the number 12? Aren't you curious about that? Why? Why? Two times in this passage, why would the number 12 be called out? There has got to be great teaching in that number. And I'm sure there is. I just have no idea what it is. I've, I have searched and searched and searched to find it. I can't find it. If you find it, come tell me because I can't get there yet. Here's what I do know. 187 times in the Bible, the number 12 is called out. But it is never defined. So that has left people believing that it is the number of completion just because of the way it's used. It starts out in things like the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 stones that the Israelites picked up, things like that. 187 times that number shows up in the Bible. But in this particular case, we have no idea why it shows up twice. We don't know if it connects them at all. But maybe, just maybe, it is the number of completion. This is an Emmanuel moment. It has authority. It has strength. It has everything that it's supposed to in both of those situations. Now, some of us might be thinking, does that mean that I got to wait 12 years? No matter what? (laughs) Some of you are thinking, I passed 12 a long time ago, and I've been waiting for the Lord. All we know is this. 
that Jesus responded to their needs when they needed him to respond to their needs. That's the way he does it. Now, let's get down in here. We're right at the end. The worship team's going to come up now, so don't be distracted by them. We're right at my favorite part of this story in Mark chapter 5. I love what Jesus says to this 12-year-old girl before she stands up. He looks at her and says, did you see it for yourself? Take a look. We're back in Mark chapter 5. He says, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. That is a Christmas declaration at its best. Little girl, little boy, old man, old woman, middle-aged man, middle-aged woman, young parents, old parents, grandparents. Doesn't matter who you are or what name you plug in. Jesus says the same thing to us. Arise. And in Emmanuel moments, God with us moments, when we respond to that command, our life changes. When we arise, we get to see something that we cannot see without it. When we arise, our eyes are open to recognize that we are in an Emmanuel moment and God is with us. The old prophet Isaiah understood that and in chapter 60, verse 1 of his book, he wrote some incredible words that the worship team is about to sing for you. This is from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. It illustrates wonderfully Emmanuel moments and what our responsibility is.